Hello, everyone, and welcome to another edition of Radio Free Acton, the official podcast of the Acton Institute dedicated to the study of religion and liberty. I'm your host, Caroline Roberts, and on today's episode, Acton's own Tyler Grunendahl speaks with Michael J. Clark, professor of economics at Hillsdale College and the past speaker at our most recent Acton On Tap event. Tyler and Michael discuss the morality of free trade. Why is it important and what are the arguments for and against it? Then on Upstream, host Bruce Edward Walker speaks with James E. Person, editor of the book Imaginative Conservatism, The Letters of Russell Kirk. Who is Russell Kirk and why is he important today? That and more here on Radio Free Acton. Hello and welcome to Radio Free Acton. My name is Tyler Grunendahl. I am the Foundation Relations Coordinator here at the Acton Institute. And today I'm going to be speaking with Professor Michael Clark, Professor of Economics at Hillsdale College. Uh, On a personal note, I had Professor Clark for a number of classes when I was a student at Hillsdale. And it's really a treat to be able to speak with him about a topic near and dear to both of our hearts here again, free trade, specifically the moral case for free trade. So, Mike, to start off, What would you say trade is? Why is it important to our everyday lives? Yeah, so trade is this cooperation of doing less with more. Um, It's a way for us to exchange with other people and be able to benefit from other people while benefiting them as well. And so it's very akin to the idea of uh, a machine helping us out, to innovation helping us out. Trade is just a different form of that innovation. Is there some kind of example that you would use to describe that? So a great example that I tend to use in my classes is not my own example, but I've used from uh, other professors before. Professor James Ingram has it in a textbook. Uh, But it's a great example of uh, hearing of this great innovation, this great kind of new technology that takes corn and it fuses it into a fully made car. Right? So we have everything in there except for maybe the electronics or something like that. And all we have to do is we take a bunch of corn, we put it into this kind of cast, and through some kind of Tesla electronic technology, we end up with basically an entire car. And it's really, really cheap. Now, if we had an American inventor uh, who came up with this car, we would just be astounded. We'd be just so happy that this inventor had created this invention, that we could now have cars that were incredibly cheap. Say a car now would cost, you know, $4,000 or something like that, right? This invention would be heralded as an achievement uh, to, to move mankind forward. If we realized that the inventor didn't actually take corn and turn it into cars, but instead had a warehouse that was empty, had no machines that could turn corn into cars, but had a, a, you know, a dock, a pier set up so that we could have a port for trading with another country that could make cars more cheaply than we could, we would have the same outcome, right? We in the United States, we would have much, much cheaper cars, say these $4,000 cars, right? Nothing really is different between the two situations, the one situation where it is an invention say that invention can't be used for anything else, right? And the situation where we have it as an import as that we have traded for that, right? And so we get this scenario where now all of a sudden, if we see this no longer inventor, but instead this person who is trading with other countries for cars, 
right? If we see this other person, we might vilify him now. Why? Because he's, right, he, he's importing from other countries. He's, he's outsourcing American manufacturing jobs in the auto industry. And so we're losing domestic jobs in either case, whether it is through an in technological innovation or if it's through an innovation of trade. And we have to see these two as being very similar because often we are pro-technological innovation, yet anti-trade, because we don't actually understand the economics and the mechanics of how trade works. But in reality, it's very, very similar to the process of innovation. Yeah, I love that story because I really think that it illustrates the core truth of what you're saying. Innovation and trade are both ways to make people's lives better by getting the goods that they need. Part of what I see as a moral case for trade is that it makes people's lives better, whether it's in the United States, whether it's in a foreign country. Fundamentally, trade and exchange allows everyone to be better off. Do you think that's sort of the core to the moral argument for free trade? Yeah, so when we talk about the moral argument for free trade, I think you know, really focusing in on this trade versus technology and how are they different really helps us see the different trade-offs that come with international trade. And so trade does make you know, everyone better off in the very long run. And I think that's a part of the moral argument. But we also have to see that this process is a process of Schumpeterian creative destruction, right? We create new, cheaper goods, but it, we also destroy the old ways of doing things. And those old ways of doing things are the manufacturing jobs that are being lost or the jobs in industries where we're now importing from, from foreign companies. Those jobs are gone. So if we started importing really cheap cars and only importing really cheap cars, Detroit and auto manufacturing pr process, all those in, people who are employed there, they're no longer going to be employed there. They lose their job in the short run. And so just telling them, oh, yeah, trade's you know, more efficient, they're not going to be sold by that, right? They're not going to be like, oh, okay, yeah, we're game, right? The actual moral argument for, for trade has to recognize that there is turnover cost up front. And when we kind of confuse ourselves about what actually happens when we have international trade and we have free trade, we miss these actual arguments. We downplay some of the actual costs, and we should acknowledge that cost, that there is this turnover that there is people losing their jobs up front. But we also have to realize that we are getting cheaper goods and the story does not end with just, oh, we lost some jobs in the car industry and everybody gets cheaper cars, right? The story doesn't end there. And the moral argument for trade doesn't end there, right? If we were just trading fewer jobs for cheaper cars, I actually think we probably end up with a pretty bad argument for free trade, right? The moral case seems to come down on, hey, you know, jobs are really important, people's livelihoods, how they're flourishing. Those, those kind of elements are very important to how we experience life, right? But that's not the end of the story. What happens is, yes, people get cheaper cars, and yes, some people do lose their jobs in the auto industry. But as all of those people get cheaper cars, they now have more money freed up to purchase other things. And those other things create new jobs in areas where we're actually good at producing them. We're not good at making cars, relatively speaking, in this example. 
right? Other countries are. And so now we have goods going to things that, that you know, purchases being made on goods that we might not even be aware are potentials right now, right? Uh, we might be buy, all of a sudden buying uh, things that are made with 3D printers or, you know, online goods that currently aren't being sold or who knows what, or maybe just, you know, the tennis racket industry starts to boom because now with more income, we have more free time and we play a little bit more tennis. We don't really know where that will go, but those new opportunities for new types of jobs also expands. And that's really the history of countries that have had innovation and trade and progress is they used to have a very few industries. And so your job prospects were very limited. In the United States, you can think of you know, 20, 30% in 1900 were all in the agricultural industry, 20, 30, 40% by some estimates. That was your outlook for life. It was like you could be a farmer and work from sunup till sundown on a job where it's hard, it's physical labor, it's not easy. I would have struggled <laughs> to exist in those conditions, right? But I have certain things about me that allow me to thrive in very particular areas that just were not available then. But now we have a bigger breadth of areas where you can use your special things that make you who, who you are right, that allow individuals to thrive and to, to express what it is that's unique and great about them, and, and not only express it, but provide it to other people, right? It's a service or it's a good that you can make for other people to share in and to benefit from as well. And so those, those expanding opportunities, that's the moral case for free trade to me. It's not that, oh, we just get cheaper things right now. Like, yeah, I want to spend a few thousand dollars less on a car or whatever it is. But the reality is what I really want, the real moral argument to me, is I want my son to have opportunities to do what he was made to do. I want him to be able to express himself and for future generations to have more opportunities. And that, to me, is where we can get that uh, genuine discussion about the moral case for free trade. And you don't have to come down on my side and say, yes, then we should have free trade, but we can have an accurate discussion about the morality of that situation. Wow, thank you. That was very, very fulsome. One quotation that always comes to my mind when we talk about stuff like this, particularly with trade, is from Frederick Bastiat, the 19th century French political economist. He has a very famous essay where he talks about things that are seen and things that are unseen. So for an example of steel tariffs, we can see if we were to enact steel tariffs that all these steel manufacturers now have more jobs. What we don't see, of course, is that people who use steel that they produce as inputs now have fewer jobs and fewer productivity because the price of the steel has risen. It's actually making things worse for them, but that's harder to see. Yeah, definitely. I mean, that the argument for trade, the reason that it has continued to exist is because we have these concentrated gain that everyone can see. We, we can see that we protected the jobs at Carrier or uh, in the car industry or in the steel industry, right? But we don't see the tiny little slivers that everybody saved on a car and where that money ends up going, right? We, when we spend $1,000 left on a car, we can go out and we can buy tennis rackets or other goods and things like that. And those other goods, that's part of the argument as well, right? Those areas could flourish 
uh, in, in addition to just the industry uh, that was being protected. Absolutely. Uh, while we're on the topic of Bastiat, there's another quotation that came to my mind when we're talking about trade. It, it's a little bit paraphrased, but Bastiat says that man is at once producer and consumer. In non-super economic terms, basically means people make stuff and people also use stuff. But he goes on to say that people use, that is, they consume, much, much, much more than they can ever hope to produce or make. And I think that argument really follows with trade in particular. Yes, you wouldn't be producing as many cars if you lose your job because of foreign cars, but think of how much you can get even without that. Do you think that applies to trade at all? Yeah, definitely. So uh, one area where I think this really jumps in is people talk about the trade deficit in the news, uh, and we hear all of these arguments. And along Bastiat's lines, I mean, think about it. What a trade deficit means is that we buy more stuff from someone than we sell them, right? And when, once we start breaking this down and thinking about how individual lives uh, are impacted by trade, we kind of start to see kind of some of the weirdness of the terms that we use when we talk about trade. Um, you know, we talk about it as countries trading with other countries. Uh, one of my colleagues, Gary Wolfram, always likes to say trades between people, not countries. Absolutely. Say, well, Canada bought more from the United States than the United States bought from Canada. Well, that's really weird. Canada <laughs> didn't buy anything from the United States, right? Someone in Canada traded with someone in the United States. And if we think about this on these individual terms, right, like I have a huge trade deficit with Walmart, right? They've never <laughs> bought anything from me, and yet I've bought a lot of stuff from Walmart. A trade deficit just means we're importing more from a country than we're exporting from it. Do you think part of the problem is the terminology used, this idea of deficit? Like when we refer to the United States federal government, a deficit is when you spend more than you take in, leading to debt, etc. Do you think there's some kind of confusion of terms that results from using deficit to sort of mean two different related things? Yeah, this is like the worst language in all of economics to me is the fact that we call it a trade deficit. And I would like to play up the fact that we have you know, a budget deficit for the United States government. Like, hey, we're spending too much money. This is problematic. We should be wise with our money. We shouldn't spend beyond our means. And then we say, oh, but wait, you're in favor of a trade deficit? Well, I'm not in favor of a trade deficit, but I'm also not afraid of it either because it doesn't mean anything of the sort like we're spending beyond our means. A trade deficit is just simply saying that, you know, the left side of the ledger is bigger than the right side of the ledger when we do this accounting of exports and imports and how much domestic saving we have versus how much domestic investment we have, right? How much investment's going on is related to this export and import uh, identity, and we just call it a deficit. I, I wish we called it anything else, <laughs> anything else, uh, because then we could get rid of this misnomer that we are spending beyond uh, our, our ability uh, and that we are kind of mortgaging the future here. Uh, I do have one last question. Adam Smith famously talked about there were certain examples wherein you could justify having some restrictions on trade or protectionism to some extent for certain things, such as for essential national defense industries. Do you think that still applies today? And if so, which ones would you think are warranted? Yeah, so I'm, uh, I think Smith, even in his own passages, is kind of um, compromising a little bit and saying, hey, this potentially could be the case. And especially during his time and in his setting, he's 
you know, uh, you know, Scotland, England, it's an island. And he talks in particular about what's called the navigation acts. And he's trying to basically keep up uh, the fact that they have a reasonable Navy. I think in his time, that, you know, if they're trading goods, it requires basically boats. And to fight wars, it requires boats. And it's really hard during his time to make them very quickly. I think it's, I think it's a reasonable argument. I, I could disagree with him, whatever. Uh, but when we move those arguments to today, in a much more globalized world, in a much more uh, advanced technological setting, I just don't think any of those arguments actually apply. Um, so I would debate with Smith during his time, uh, but I would disagree with him if we took his same arguments to today. Um, so if we think of national defense, uh, a lot of times that gets brought up um, with, say, steel um, in the steel industry. We actually make quite a bit of steel here, even when we are importing it. Uh, and there's lots of places around the world. In terms of national defense, we'd have to like go to war with all of those places simultaneously uh, in order to not have access to steel there. And we'd have to not be able to build, you know, you know, helicopters or jets or whatever we want to use the steel for, we'd have to not be able to build that stuff and then store it, right? Like why not, why, why instead of putting tariffs in place and making sure that we're producing steel, why not just import the steel from people who can make it more cheaply, build our guns, tanks, planes, you know, all that stuff and store it out in the desert. Um, there's lots of arguments like this. And we also have to be careful with national defense arguments and things like that, where we have to realize the reality of the situation. If we use it in one case where it's marginally helpful, like say it does increase our national defense and the cost benefit calculation is, is positive for us to put a tariff on steel, we also have to realize that along with that is going to come numerous other cases where people are going to make the claim that in in the name of national defense, we also have to protect their industry. If you don't believe this, you can go through the congressional reports and see that already historically we have had uh, manufacturers of pens, of umbrella frames, of erasers, of all kinds of things make the national defense argument and argue for tariffs. So even if that one industry, say steel, is marginally positive, which I would doubt, then we also have to bring in the calculus all of the other costs uh, that are along with it. So I think Smith, you know, in his arguments against trade, I mean, he was a huge proponent of free trade, right? In his quibbles and discussions of where we might have nuances, uh, I think he, you know, had a reasonable case, although I might disagree with him in his time. But in modern society, all of those cases just have not proven uh, to, to come into fruition, and I don't think they apply as well. All right. Well, thank you so much, Mike. I think we are all about ready to wrap up on this. Was there any kind of parting shot you want to do? Quick one-sentence summary, what a moral case for free trade might be? Yeah, I would just say just keep in mind that you trade with uh, other individuals all of the time, and that's really beneficial. Trade is this form of cooperation. Why does it matter when it's across some invisible line? Trade is helping us do more with less. It has great consequences for the world around us. 
All right. Well, thank you so much once again. Thank you to Professor Michael Clark, Professor of Economics at Hillsdale College, for joining us on Radio Free Acton. What makes a good society? A vibrant moral culture? A strong economy? Or could it be all of this and more? The Good Society, a new six-part video series, explores the economic, moral, political, social, and theological foundations of a flourishing society. To learn more and watch the first episode, visit actonacton.org slash tgs. Hello and welcome to this week's edition of Upstream. I'm your host, Bruce Edward Walker, and this week we're talking with James Person Jr., or as I like to call him, Jim Person, who has edited a lively book on the letters of Russell Amos Kirk, the sage of Macosta, Michigan. Hello, Jim. How are you today? Very well, Bruce. It's a pleasure to speak to you. Well, let, let's get started by discussing who exactly was Russell Kirk. I mean, you and I both knew him and uh, had, the, had the pleasure of his company and uh, friendship. But uh, for those who are unaware of who Russell Kirk is, let us know. Yes. Russell Kirk is a Michigan-born uh, writer, uh, born 1918, died in 1994. He was the writer of 32 books. And perhaps the most in, uh, important of them was one published in 1953 called The Conservative Mind. It's considered one of the key landmarks in the so-called post-war conservative movement in the United States that saw the rise of people such as William F. Buckley Jr. and uh, James Burnham and, and, uh, and so forth and so on that uh, rolled on through the mid part of the 20th century and perhaps reached its culmination in the election of, uh, of Ronald Reagan in the 1980s. Right. And he, and he was very much a, a man of letters as well. He was widely read in more than just political science and political theory. He was well read in literature as of many of the letters that are included in this volume attest. That's true. In fact, it comes as a surprise to many, many people that he was an accomplished writer of ghost stories. And he wrote uh, a good number of them, and they are memorable, well-crafted, and admired by other craftsmen in the field. Let's turn to the letters. The, the, the name of your book is Imaginative Conservative, the letters of Russell Kirk. And it covers the decades from – it goes decade by decade, 1940s, 1950s, 1960s, 1970s, up, up until the 90s when he passed away. And right. uh, he wrote letters to – Many different people from many different fields. I mean, we're talking from T.S. Eliot to Henry Kissinger. And uh, yeah. when did he start making copies of the letters that that he wrote to uh, some of these individuals? Yes. Well, of course, in the 1940s, when he was just starting to to uh, uh, when, when his letters, uh, as it, they appear in this collection, uh, first started appearing. He had no idea he was going to become a world-famous person, and so, of course, he didn't keep copies of his letters. But around the time he got married uh, in the mid-1960s, his wife, Annette Kirk, convinced him that really he ought to start setting aside his letters for posterity. So she arranged that uh, he did start keeping uh, carbons or at least photocopies of all his letters from that point on. So roughly from, let's say, 1965 up until the time of his death in 1994, there were, uh, there's a pretty complete 
collection of his letters uh, on file at the Russell Kirk Center for Cultural Renewal in, in the Costa, Michigan. Right. And and some of the letters that I had perused prior, uh, I did a podcast segment uh, last year on Jerry Purnell upon Purnell's passing, and I was able to access some of Russell's letters, his correspondence with, with Purnell. And uh, who are some of the other more interesting characters that, that you found in the book? And, and, and why should our listeners care about uh, what Russell Kirk had to say to for example, T.S. Eliot or Ray Bradbury. Mm-hmm. Yes, he wrote to a wide variety, uh, sort of a who's who in the world of politics and literature and, and academia during the, the uh, 20th century. So, for example, we have letters to Arthur Schlesinger Jr., to Ray Bradbury, who you mentioned, as well as uh, T.S. Eliot, Richard Nixon, Eliot Richardson, uh, Jacques Bourzoun. Um, and uh, some of the other giants in the world of literature and politics during that time. What was it that uh, attracted him to write such letters? And there's also some uh, dishing of the dirt that that he does uh, in some of these letters. Uh, He was upset over the co-editorship or what turned out to be a co-editorship of Modern Age, the magazine that he founded. Yeah, that's true. Uh, a lot of the, the appeal of these letters has to do with the insights that he provides to some of the, the controversies, but also not just the controversies, but just life and culture in mid-20th century uh, America. Uh, for example, he, he, would, uh, write, he, he would answer questions that people had written to him, such as uh, during the late 1960s and early 70s, people would write and say, why are our campuses aflame? Why are young people so unhappy? Do we have any hope through all this? And I think many of the answers that he offered at that particular time are very much of the moment today as well. Absolutely. I, I, I just read uh, his response to one of those requests and uh, his share with us some of the responses that he gave, because I think they are very telling and that they, they cast college students being part of this very vast university experience where they use this to use protest as a means and demonstrations as a means to just basically say, I'm alive, I exist, I am not just a a number. Yes, and and that is is one of the key insights that comes out of these letters is that um, when you hear the, the term conservative, you might think of a certain set of characteristics in a person. But Russell Kirk was not simply a stereotype of some old grump who hated young people or anything like that. He looked at what was going on on those college campuses and he thought, this is what comes of giantism in education. It also comes of what is what of what you might call cultural decadence, the loss of an object in life, a casting about for identity and significance and aim and purpose in life. In fact, in one of his uh, his newspaper columns that he wrote at the time, he uh, surprised a lot of people when he said, the, the young people who are upset on campuses today about ecological issues are to some extent very much in the right because there's nothing more conservative than conservation. So uh, he, he's an intriguing person, well worth reading his letters as well as his other books. 
Right. And uh, for listeners who don't have a lot of time to wade through the, how many books did you say he published? 28? 32. 32. I was off by four. Yeah. Well, uh, if you, if readers or listeners don't have time to read through all of that, uh, a highly recommended book would be your critical biography of Russell Kirk, because uh, you do you touch on all the, the capstones in each of his books. You're very kind to say so, Bruce. Thank you. <laughs> well, I, I've recommended it to uh, audiences when I give speeches all the time, because I, I really do think that is one of the the most concise descriptors of, of Kirk's work over the years. Tell me what surprised you the most about uh, the letters that you perused? I mean, you you, you were well aware of, of Russell Kirk's career, but there had to be something in there that, that really surprised you, that kind of knocked you back on your heels quite a bit. Uh, yeah, there was, as far as surprising, it was a surprise that didn't so much knock me back on my heels, but it sort of crept up on me a little at a time. And that is, there's a sense as you read through the letters from the 1940s and you progress through the years up towards the present time, you see Kirk grow in a certain extent in the way that in, in a way that you wouldn't necessarily expect. Because a lot of times it's, it's like your parents. You expect that they were always the way they are. Um, in the case of Kirk, we look at him and say, well, he was always a traditionalist conservative, focusing on matters of spirit and culture and so forth. But as you read through the 1940s especially, you see him growing from um, a young man who was, to be very honest, a little little full of himself, and he grew into a sort of libertarian in the Albert J. Nock model. And then as as he goes through the late 40s and early 50s and through the mid 50s and on, he becomes more... Uh, more of the sort of person he we all remember him as, and that is the person who who famously wrote that uh, the modern conservative is concerned first of all for the uh, cultivation of, of the spirit and character and that sort of thing. And that's one of the things that I noticed through the progression of the book is that uh, he was very very much concerned with uh, the the life of the spirit. Right, right, you are, and that that alone I think is something that is decidedly missing from a lot of what we call conservatism today is these aspects of spirit, character, and culture are sort of considered, yeah, that's nice, but let's win elections instead. You know, that sort of thing. Or or even to the point where he says in one of the letters, and I can't recall who the letter was to, where he says that a lot of this is just to the point of winning an argument rather than converting hearts and minds. Exactly. And you're you're never going to change hearts and minds, whether it's you're in your own family, within your circle of friends, or within the culture at large, if your attitude is simply, well, I'm going to win this battle even if I lose the war. Anybody can do that, bludgeoning a person into submission in in argument. But if you can earn that person over to your other side, in much the same way that Kirk uh, won an audience over to his side in Ann Arbor back in 1968 when he debated Tom Hayden on campus uh, in a surprise victory in a debate. That is that is what it's all about, and that is changed hearts and minds. Well, terrific. I'm talking to James Person, who is the editor of Imaginative Conservatism, The Letters of Russell Kirk. It's 
published by the University of Kentucky Press. Uh, Jim Person is always, also the author of Russell Kirk, A Critical Biography. And it's a wonderful book, Jim, and I thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us today. You're very welcome, Bruce. Thank you for speaking to me. And with that, we've come to the end of another episode. A big thanks to all our listeners out there. We want to hear from you. Email us at rfa at acton.org to let us know what you like and what you would like to hear more of. And if you have questions for scholars here at Acton that you would like answered in our podcast segments, Acton Mailbag, leave us a message at 888-705-4180. Lastly, if you like what you heard today, give us a rating on iTunes. This episode is produced by Caroline Roberts and edited by Nathan Moore.